Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour. So glad you have a little chance to spend some time with me. I know things get busy in the afternoon. Mine has been quite hectic, but right now I'm settling down and just enjoying talking with you and having hopefully some educational help for you. And I've got quite a few different topics. Some of them are related to my usual topics, but I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll learn something. And like I like to say, I learn by teaching and teach by learning. So that's my theory anyway. One question that keeps coming up, and it's in the tax department. I'm a CPA. I do a lot of income taxes along with other accounting work, but I, I would say I'm my office is mainly tax and tax planning, tax preparation. One question that comes up quite often, so I know it's a common problem and a common question, when do I need to pay the taxes? When you're working for wages, they do withholding all year long. The withholding that you get on your W-2 is treated as if it was taken equally during the entire year. That's why they don't like people to go with zero withholding for part of the year and then a lot of withholding for later. Because legally, if you could legally do all of your withholding in December and none the rest of the year, the law would treat your withholding as if it was done equally throughout the year and you wouldn't be like a late payer of your tax. Where the trick comes as far as when taxes due is when, number one, when you're not working for wages and you don't have withholding and you have to send your own tax in. The other one is if you have an event during the year where you make some income that's unusual, maybe you need to pay that tax in right away. Maybe you don't. That's the main question for when is tax due today in my mind and I want to let you know the general theory of when you need to pay the tax and sometimes when you don't I don't want to get too complicated it sort of ends up seeming very confusing but it's just something that it's it's good to know the basics I'm going to give you the basics today if you were to let's say you sell a piece of land that you own and you make a $50,000 gain and you call your person helping you, like maybe me or maybe some other tax professional, and they tell you, well, you're going to owe 10000 federal and 5000 state for the income tax. That's the first part of the equation is what's the tax amount caused by this gain? But the second part of the question is, okay, when do I need to pay this? Do I need to pay it right away? Do I need to pay it today? Do I need to pay it next month? Do I get to wait till April of next year when I file? That's the question. I'll try to simplify the answer. When you have income during the year of 2018, since that's the year we're in, that tax is definitely going to be due by April 15th of 2019. That's going to be the due date for your 2018 tax. The question is, if you wait till April 15th of next year to pay all that tax, will you be penalized? The penalty, the potential penalty that we're talking about in this case is called the underpayment of estimated tax penalty. The simplest way to explain whether you need to pay in some tax right away is to first analyze the ways that you can avoid getting this penalty. So in other words, if you can avoid getting the penalty for underpayment of estimated tax and still not pay by April of next year, that means you didn't get the penalty. So let's look at the three ways that you avoid this underpayment penalty. So we're going to assume that on April 15th of next year, because of this land sale, everything else you did was just fine. You had the right amount of withholding, but you owe 10000 federal and 5000 state, and you're going to pay it April of next year. Here's the way it gets figured of whether that would generate a penalty. When you calculate your 20, 
17 tax, when you look back at your tax one year ago, is the total tax on that tax return less than the amount you've paid in in withholding. So in other words, if every year you get a refund of $1,000 or so from your withholding and that's always your income level, then your withholding this year is probably going to be enough to, to match last year's total tax. That is one of the exceptions for this underpayment penalty. So if you know for a fact that your 2017 total tax was, say, $7,000, and your total withholding for 2018 is going to be $8,000, that means you've met an exception to the underpayment penalty, and you don't have to send in the $15,000 of extra tax on this land sale. You don't have to send it in early. You can send it in next April and you won't have a penalty. Now, the other exception to this rule is if you end up owing less than $1,000 when you do your taxes on April in April of 2019 and you're doing your 2018 taxes, if you owe less than $1,000, they won't bother to make you calculate whether you underpaid or not. If you owe them $999, you won't pay the underpayment of estimated tax penalty. Now, the other exception to that penalty is having paid 90% of the current year's tax. So let's say that let's say that 2017 you had a large tax balance for some reason of say 12,000, but this year your tax liability is uh, 8,000. If you didn't have the land gain, you would be able to escape the penalty because you will have 90% of your current year's tax paid. But in this case, you won't because you've got that $15,000 of extra tax. Now, I don't want to get any more confusing than it's already getting. What I want to explain to you is there's two major types of penalties when it talk about penalties to the IRS as far as late payment of tax. All of your tax for 2018, whether you calculated it early or not, that is due on April 15th of the following year. That'll be April 15th, 2019. If you don't have the money to pay that tax bill in April of 2019, you'll get a penalty for not having paid it by then if you don't pay it by April. But that's a late payment penalty. That's different than this understatement of estimated tax. So I guess my main point of this little discussion is that It's a very common question, when do I need to pay the tax that I know I'm going to owe? And the answer is, it all depends. As you can see, it depends on the prior year's tax. It depends on how much you're having withheld this year. It depends on a lot of different subjects. My main point is, is that if you have anything unusual with your income and you pretty much figure you're going to have a big tax balance, You need to consult with a professional and ask them, when does this need to be paid? I have a client who just sold a property for a big gain, and I'm doing the same calculation for them. If they do need to pay it early, and I haven't got the calculation figured yet, they may have to pay some tax in by September 15th because their sale happened in August. But... If they don't have to, they can sit on that money or use it for a while and not send it in until April of next year. So it's a very important question. And to be honest, it's not an easy question to answer for anyone. And if you uh, aren't a professional tax type, I do recommend that you consult a tax preparation specialist if you ever know you have some extra income that's going to cause tax and you're not, number one, First, you have to decide how much tax is it going to cost me. Second of all, you need to find out when is that tax going to be due. And that was the point I was making. You need to know when it's due. It might not be due right away. Like I say, though, it does get kind of complicated. The more I explain it, the more I realize it's not a simple topic. But it's definitely something that you can get help with. And I offer a free initial consultation, so you could even have that question as one of your consultation questions, and you'd probably get a freebie out of me for for one like that. And not because it's simple, it's because, I mean, I've been doing this for over 30 years, and I'm pretty familiar with ways to avoid these penalties. It's, uh, It's just part of 
part of being a tax person. I try to keep you informed. I'm always your best second opinion, a devil's advocate. I'm not a financial planner, and this is not financial advice. It's for entertainment purposes. So anything I say, you need to, number one, take it with a grain of salt because I don't spend 24 hours a day researching my sources. I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. And number two, you need to do what's called do your own due diligence. Anything somebody tells you, including your stockbroker, you need to double check your own ideas and say, you know what, I'm going to double check whether that's correct or not and whether I agree with that or not. And unfortunately, not everybody does that. And a lot of people end up with getting some surprises. My first topic today, I'm keeping you informed on the, we're going to branch out from the local to the state to the national to the world, as, as we usually do. Oh, then we'll go to the universe after the world. So we're going to cover it all today. It's going to be a fun business buzz. I'm enjoying it already. So my first story is just a little bit of a follow-up. My guest a week or so ago was Kim Scott of Chico Scrap Metal. And the day I was interviewing her, she was heading to a Chico City Council meeting. And now I've got an article related to that meeting, and it looks like a judge stepped in and told the city council what to do, told them to repeal an agreement that had allowed Chico Scrap Metal to stay where they are for a period of time. This is a kind of a complicated subject, so forgive me. I just wanted to sort of keep you posted because I was reading up on this. So it sounds like the scrap metal company is appealing the judge's decision. I believe also the city council is appealing. And there's a question, and I I have a law degree, but I'm not an attorney, nor do I play one on television. It's a legal question. Can a judge step in and influence a city council decision without an actual case in front of that judge? I'm not certain on that, but it sounds like that's what happened. And it sounds like there's some appealing movement going on to say that the judge doesn't have the right to order the city council to do or don't do anything. So I'll keep following this story. I'll keep you guys posted if I find it interesting enough and if I can understand it enough to be intelligent about it. I don't want to bring up a subject that I really am not familiar with. I've read what I can, and it sounds like there's going to be quite a bit more arguing and hassling and all that. One point to remember is that whenever the government takes something, they have to compensate you. It's part of the Fifth Amendment. It's been a bit convoluted, though, I'd say over the last 20 or 30 years from what I've read. There's been quite a few cases I've read where these takings end up being transfers to somebody else's pocket, basically. I won't get into any details. I don't have any here with me printed. The bottom line is that's a huge, huge privilege. I won't call it a privilege. It's a huge, huge responsibility of the, quote, government, unquote, to make certain that if they take something of a private citizen, that they compensate them fairly for it. It's a huge part of the Constitution. It's a huge part of our rights. Of course, remember, the Bill of Rights is the first of first ten amendments, and that's one of them. The point is, is that, what's that thing from, I believe it's from Spider-Man, with huge, with huge power comes huge responsibility? I would say that as far as whenever a government decides to take something from a private person, That's a huge power, so it does need a huge responsibility. I'm sure everybody will be working out their side on this thing, but the Chico scrap metal is sort of a good, it's just a good example of a situation where a government is taking something and it's unclear what they're really offering as far as just compensation. Well, just remains to be seen. In other words... I'm not certain this whole Chico scrap metal taking situation has been, had an offer made where it's like, hey, we'll give you X amount of dollars for your property. 
I don't think that's happened yet. I'll be coming up on that first break real soon. When I come back, we're going to get into some real interesting news about one of my favorite California companies. This relates to California. It relates to automobiles. And it relates to the national economy. Because this is one of those stocks that you might even own part of in your portfolio and not even know it. Anybody who's been listening to my show for the last few weeks can guess which company that is. I'll be right back on Business Buzz. Stay tuned. Interesting stuff coming up. Ridge Transmissions in Paradise reminds drivers every time you get behind the wheel, be attentive and always be aware of children. Buckle up for safety. When driving with a child, be sure they're fastened properly and securely in the back seat. This safety reminder has been sponsored by Ridge Transmissions, 475 Pearson Road in Paradise, providing 33 years of integrity and excellence in service. Give them a call today at 530-877-3050. And remember to be patient and drive with care. Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon, here on KKXX. The Journey with Annie Meadows. Honest, thought-provoking, The Journey is a half-hour program airing every week. Listen as Annie shares from her heart and life experiences with the belief that you can be free, you can be better, and you can take courage. Join us for The Journey with Annie Meadows, weekends at 1230, here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We're talking about my my favorite interesting company that you may have in your portfolio and you may not even know it. And that company, of course, is called Tesla. They make cars. They make electric cars. So I'll keep you up to speed. Last week, Mr. Musk, the chairman of Tesla, who has promised that the people who are short sellers, and this is over the past few months, it's like the number one most shorted stock in the country. There's so many people betting against it. And he has vowed in various tweets over the last few months to burn the short sellers. In other words, if he can think of ways to make his stock price go up, the short sellers lose. So he's already promised to burn the short sellers. So about a week ago, he tweeted a tweet that, said something to the effect of the company's going to be taken private for $420 a share and the funding is secured. Now that was a the type of alert that would perk somebody's ears up because I believe the share price at the time he said that was like 340 or something per share. It shot up to like 370 per share when he did that tweet. The problem is it may turn out that he didn't have any funding at all. And I mentioned some of that last week, but I've got a new article, a real short one. It's called Goldman reportedly had no mandate when Musk tweeted. And it said, following Elon Musk's tweet last night, oh, now he did another tweet uh, a day or two ago, claiming that, quote, I'm excited to work with Silver Lake and Goldman Sachs as financial advisors plus Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, and Munger, Tolls, and Olson as legal advisors on the proposal to take Tesla private. As Bloomberg notes, such a statement from a public company CEO typically signals a formal agreement. 
However, Bloomberg reports that, according to people with knowledge of the matter, Goldman Sachs hadn't been formally tapped as a financial advisor by Tesla when Musk revealed plans last week to take the automaker private and said he'd secured the funding for the transaction. Silver Lake appears to be in a similar situation. Reuters reported yesterday that the firm hasn't been hired as an advisor in official capacity, and the Financial Times reported that Silver Lake was unaware of Musk's plan when it was announced last week. That was that tweet last week that I told you about. It would seem Goldman and, for that matter, Silver Lake may be CYAing in case the SEC actually begins to sniff around Musk's Musk and wants a timeline. Now, CYAing, in case you don't know, means cover your problems. CYA. Uh, Tesla shares are modestly lower on the day. That's probably today and remain well below the funding secured levels from last week. So I had to keep you posted on that. Now, in addition to that, a few weeks ago, I told you about Tesla having a tent set up in order to make their 5,000 cars a week that Mr. Musk had promised they would be doing. That was interesting because they got the number technically done, but they called it factory-gated 5,000 cars. Now, here's another article from today. And the title of this article is Tesla Model 3 Bumper Falls Off After 30 Minutes and Heavy Rain. And there's a picture on this article. And this is from ZeroHedge.com, my favorite place to get my financial news. There's a picture of a car with not really a bumper cover. It's like a, looks like a junked car in the car lot when they show this picture. So I'm going to read this article real quick. Not a long one. Hang in there. With Tesla scrambling to produce as many Model 3s as possible to meet Wall Street expectations, it is no surprise that the company has recently been plagued with anecdotal reports of shoddy workmanship and quality control issues. And what just happened over the weekend to the formerly delighted owner of a brand new Model 3 confirms many of these stories. A person bought a Tesla Model 3 and within the first 30 minutes of driving the car back home, the rear bumper cover falls off. The owner, Rithesh Nair, tweeted a picture of his car directly letting Elon Musk know about his new exposed behind. One half hour, bringing Model 3 home, run into heavy rain on the streets, and bumper comes off. While it was not immediately clear if there were any mitigating factors to explain why the bumper fell off, the article notes the hint in the environmental conditions of this Model 3's inaugural drive, heavy rain, which led to the following snarky observation. Quote, cars are generally pretty good at retaining their body panels in the rain, even bottom-of-the-market cars like Mitsubishi Mirage, but it seems to be a challenge for this Model 3. Or perhaps it wasn't the rain to blame, but merely crummy production quality as another Model 3 owner responded with a picture of his own car, which had similarly lost its rear bumper. And that guy said, hey, that looks like mine. And then he shows a picture, same thing. There's no bumper cover on the car. And uh, they note that according to speculation of other tweeters, the issue seems to be related to a bit of cloth-like shielding under the car, which would deflect water and debris around and below the bumper. If this bit of shielding gets torn or loose, water can be forced into the bumper cover, which would act like a big water catch basin, eventually being pulled off its mounts from the weight and or pressure of the water being directed up inside the bumper cover. Still, while Tesla fanboys may be quick to explain away any defect, the fact that this is happening at all is pretty incredible, and not just once on a car that has repeatedly gotten the highest marks from, quote, independent industry observers. Keeping your bumper cover on in pretty much all weather is a very, very solved problem in the automobile industry. In response to the article, Tesla, which these days is busier coming up with leveraged buyout narratives than making sure its, quote, factory-gated cars are usable in the real world, made the following statement. We're setting an extremely high bar for Model 3, and what happened in this situation is not how we build our cars. 
We're investigating the issue to understand what caused it, and we are contracting, contacting our customers to resolve this and ensure they are satisfied. That is my little commentary on my favorite company. You may want to ask your stockbroker how many shares of 300 and something dollar per share Tesla you own, the company that lost $700 million in each of the previous two quarters. And now the bumpers are falling off of their cars, apparently. I'll say allegedly, because it's not my car. To be honest, I would never spend 70000 on any car. And if I did, I don't think it would be a brand new, I'll almost call it an experimental car, because I think they're still working the bugs out of all this stuff. My next article, it's from a bit of an older article. It came out in, I believe, around the end of 2012, but it's so appropriate today and it fits in so well with what I want to tell you about that I'm going to go ahead and read some of this article. The title of the article is is Why Your Money is Worthless, and the, the author of the title is named Brandon King, and I don't believe he's famous. I think he's a blog writer like me. But what he says is so good that I want to share it with you. And remember, this is all good news. It may sound negative, but it's positive because I'm giving you the heads up that not everything you hear is 100% true. Now, this is not financial advice. I'm not a financial planner. I'm a CPA with a law degree. I'm not an attorney. There's a lot of things I'm not. Pretty amazing, isn't it? The main thing is, is I'm trying not to be foolish. And if you believe that a system like ours can actually deliver you real authentic news that isn't designed basically just to tell you how to act and to keep them, I'll just say them, to keep the people with all the money with all the money and to keep us working hard to get them all that money, I guess that's a good way to put it. If you believe that that news you're getting is accurate, faithful, in your best interest, and true, that's the problem. And I'm here to tell you there's a second side to every story, and that includes stories on the news, stories in the newspaper, even though nobody reads paper newspapers anymore. A few people do. I'm going to be coming up on that bottom of the hour break. But I want to share with you some of the ideas in this article called Why Your Money is Worthless. I think it's going to be very helpful to you to learn this stuff. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back on Business Buzz after this short break. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Rob Walter, host of Red Sky Radio with Rob Walter. This is a program that proclaims liberty to the captives of our beloved nation, where truth trumps political correctness and where the uncompromised word of God exposes the works of darkness and sets free those held hostage behind the iron curtain of a shamelessly biased media. America, we have a trail to blaze. It's time to saddle up. It's time to ride. Join me at 7 a.m. on KKXX. Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. here on KKXX. Hello, I'm Gary Crossland. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Everything in the epistles points backward to Jesus. That's why I encourage people to read the words of Jesus every day. This is where emotional and spiritual health come from. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Well, where do you read his commandments? But in the Gospels. Now, I know that it's easy to get a little confused when jumping between one Gospel and the next, which is why I wrote the Merged Gospels. It's where all four Gospels are literally translated from the Greek, broken down word by word, and merged back together into one beautiful chronological story with not one word of scripture removed. You can't buy it in stores. It's available only online at mergedgospels.com. It's great for new believers, for personal devotions, and for group studies. There's also an audiobook. And as always, you get to name the price. Just go to mergedgospels.com. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? 
when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood, or an earthquake is destroying buildings? Or is the best time, perhaps, today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm glad you have a chance to spend part of your busy afternoon with me. I've got a real interesting article that I believe is going to be very educational, hopefully a little bit stimulating, and it'll, it'll get your mind thinking. And it's called Why Your Money is Worthless, and the author's name is Brandon King. And it looks like his website is called thetruthwillrise.wordpress.com. I want to give credit where credit's due. Why is our nation in financial peril? Why are the people of this nation working more for less money and are sinking deeper in debt? Most people attribute it merely to the economy or the government, complain and leave it at that. They fail to realize how the banking and monetary system works and how that affects them. The vast majority of the people do not understand how money works. They believe that it is backed by gold or silver, and that is what gives the money its value. In reality, money has not been backed by anything since 1971, when then-President Richard Nixon announced that the U.S. dollar would no longer be redeemable for gold. Prior to that point, particularly before 1933, the dollar was redeemable for gold. Now what we have is a fiat currency, which is money backed by absolutely nothing. And I'll interject here. Remember, the word fiat means let there be, like let there be light, let there be currency, let there be money. I'm going to continue. Originally, paper money was used as a receipt for gold. People used to take their gold to the goldsmiths for safekeeping in their vaults for a fee. The depositor would get a receipt which allowed them to come back and collect their gold. The goldsmiths soon began to realize the vast majority never came back to reclaim their gold, so they began to loan it out to others for a small fee. However, they would loan out many times more gold than they had in their vaults, and this brought them large profits. This was the origin of the fractional reserve banking system. Fractional reserve banking allows banks to loan out more than what they have in actual deposits. The reserve requirement determines how much they have to keep in reserve and through that, how much they can loan out. For example, if a bank has $10,000 in deposits and if the reserve requirement is 10%, then they can loan out up to $90,000. This fraudulent system has allowed the banking system to reap massive profits and it is the only industry that is permitted to do this. No other business is allowed to legally loan out more than what they have and do it for profit. In short, the banks loan out money that does not exist and then charge interest on it and demand real collateral on that non-existent money. The apex of the banking system in the United States is the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the country. A central bank is the bank that manages monetary policies for a nation. Central banking has been around since the 1600s with the establishing of the Bank of England in 1694. Central banking was brought to the United States with the passing of the Federal Reserve Act on December 22, 1913, when most members of the Congress were home for the holidays. The Federal Reserve System was hatched at a secret meeting in 1910 at a resort on Jekyll Island, off the coast of Georgia. Seven men who were aligned with in, in, international bankers over the course of nine days hashed out the Federal Reserve System. Most people think that the Federal Reserve is a government agency. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The Federal Reserve is a quasi-private run-for-profit entity. And if you look it up in the phone book and look up Federal Reserve, it will not be listed in the government pages but will be listed in the white pages. The federal part of the name was given to the entity 
in order to make the public think it was part of the government. That is one of the many scams associated with the Federal Reserve. It was sold to the people as a lender of last resort and a stabilizing force of the economy, and to say it has performed poorly at this aim is being kind. Since its insidious implementation, the economy has been less stable than ever. It has overseen and caused the 1921 and 1929 stock market crashes, the Great Depression, and numerous recessions, including the one we are in right now. Now, I'll make a note. This was probably written in the end of 2012. A lot of people say we're not in a recession, but based on what I see uh, working on Mangrove Avenue every day, I think we are. Remember the definition of a recession? The definition of a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. Okay, I'm going to continue. It is common belief money comes from the government or the Federal Reserve gives it to the government. In actuality, the private Federal Reserve loans it to the government at interest. This places the government and thus the people and the nation in immediate debt. This is why national business and consumer debt has risen since the Fed came into being. We have a debt-based monetary system. They are responsible for this nation being taken off the gold standard. Having a currency backed by real assets like gold or silver limits how much money you can print. The move away from the gold standard has allowed the Fed to literally print money out of thin air. Since there is nothing backing the currency, the only thing that gives it value is the amount of it in circulation. The increase of the money in circulation coupled with nothing backing the currency has, called a co- has caused a constant devaluing of our money. A dollar today has lost over 90% of its buying power from that of the early 1900s. The devaluing dollar is why it now takes at least two and in many cases more incomes just to make ends meet. The government likes this system because it allows them access to nearly unlimited funds without having to raise taxes. The Federal Reserve System is also responsible for the business cycle. In order to make more money and credit available, the Fed buys a government security. To deflate, that is to make money and credit less available, the Fed sells government securities. This process, which happens solely at the Fed's discretion, is the prime cause for the booms and subsequent busts that mar the track record of the Federal Reserve. Another fraud perpetrated on the American people was the implementation of the income tax. This unconstitutional statute, which is not on the books and strangely the IRS refuses to show the law, which requires Americans to pay a direct unapportioned tax on their labor, was allegedly given to us through the 16th Amendment, which was not even ratified. And as a side note, I brought up the Bill Benson book, The Law That Never Was, that talked about that. So this guy's referring to that same thing that I brought up a couple months ago. Now, as a CPA, I'm not allowed to, quote, knock the, the IRS. So I'm not knocking the IRS. I'm just reading an article that mentioned the IRS. Okay, if you do not believe me, you can consult with Supreme Court who has ruled against the constitutionality of income tax in cases dating back to 1894 and also ruled in cases such as Stanton versus Baltic Mining and many, many others that the 16th Amendment did not give the government any new taxation powers. To put it simply, the Supreme Court ruling stated the income tax is unconstitutional and the 16th Amendment did not empower the government for this tax. The government did not get it then, and they still do not have the power now. For the people who question how would government be funded, understand that the income tax does not go to any of the services that people expect from government, i.e. things like roads, defense, education, etc. 100% of the money collected from the illegal income tax goes to pay interest on the national debt. Who are we indebted to, you ask? It goes to the Federal Reserve and the international bankers who own it. So in short, the income taxes is pure profit for these bankers. Along with the income tax, we have also had the Internal Revenue Service, the collection arm of the Federal Reserve System, thrust upon us. This evil agency acts essentially as the enforcer for the Fed as they take people's assets that people don't pay up. That is totalitarian to say the least, and it is essentially what a bully or the mob does. And again, I will point out that as a CPA, 
I do not speak ill of the IRS in my own words. I'm just reading an article that I'm educating my audience with. The implementation of the Federal Reserve has allowed international bankers, families like the Rothschilds, Rockefellers, Harriman, Schiffs, Warburgs, and the Morgans, just to name a few, to sink their claws into the United States, not only financially, but politically as well. That was only a step in a plan that has been in the works for a very long time. The immense wealth of those who own the Fed and other central banks has quite literally allowed them to buy our government. Through agents, foundations, and corporations, they make massive contributions to politicians and through that are able to get their agendas accomplished. Right now, the United States is just another country under the control of these international bankers. These international bankers, the money changers, as James Madison called them, seek to set up a global government by and for the bankers where they track and control everyone on the planet. These things are not pleasant to think about or write, but we can and must stop this from happening. The first step is reading things like this and getting informed and spreading the truth out to others. We must seek to end the Federal Reserve System in the United States and restore sound money and banking to our nation. The population must be educated that our currency as it is now is backed by nothing and our financial reserve banking system is fraudulent. The illegal income tax must be abolished as the bankers have made enough money off of the sweat, ignorance, and fear of the American people for far too long. Getting rid of these evils will put more money back in the pockets of the people of this nation and allow them to raise their standard of living for them and their families. Executive Order 11110 signed by President John F. Kennedy restored to the United States government the authority to issue its own silver-backed currency. This returned us to real currency and would have ended the need for Federal Reserve notes. This would have ended the Fed's monopoly over the money system of the Republic. Though President Kennedy was, assass- though President Kennedy was assassinated five months after the signing of this order, it still stands valid and unrepealed. If it were reenacted, it would place us on sound financial footing once more. I'm coming up on that last break. This article also mentions that Representative Ron Paul of Texas sponsored the Federal Reserve Abolition Act. Of course, we know now, six years later, that never got passed. Ron Paul retired. His son Rand is still in the... Rand Paul, I believe, is a senator. But what I, the reason I read that article was I want to educate you on what the banking system is really all about and why my warnings about having money insurance are important. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll see you in a minute. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Delicate beauty. This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum. Saturn's thousands of rings are the most spectacular of any known planet. They're made of ice, dust, and rocks, ranging in size from a sand grain to a building. The rings and their gaps are so stable, each has its own name. And the rings are very intricate, some even braided. Many astronomers think these rings formed billions of years ago from the debris of a crashed asteroid. But the rings are way too intricate for that idea. So the new story is that Saturn's tidal forces must have torn apart one of its satellites, but all four outer planets have rings. Could this have happened four times? Not likely. No, the rings are handmade by God. Listen to this program again, view a transcript, or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com. And subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. He really likes to be around people. I get out my mat, and I'm doing a downward dog, and he's underneath. He's quite the pug about town. He gets invited to a lot of parties. He knows he's a pretty big deal. Look at this little face. How could you not love him? Hamilton the Pug, Instagram star and shelter pet. Amazing adoption stories start in shelters. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm going to finish out the hour with a little bit more about money insurance. Then I'm going to get into some some head-spinning talk about the universe. How's that sound? If you've been watching any kind of news, and especially financial news, you will have heard about the fall of the Turkish lira. It got serious on Friday. It got really bad on Monday. It a little better today. But to make a long story short, we see a currency circling around a toilet bowl heading heading in a downward spiral. It just so happens that the U.S. dollar is the world's favorite currency right now, and it's had a little strength. So as a currency, what I just talked about in that article I read called Why Your Money is Worthless, we're talking about, you might look and say, well, a dollar's doing pretty well. It's, it's going up against the Turkish lira. It's going up against the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar. And I say, yes, as of right now, it's the favorite of all the worthless paper money that mean zero and have nothing backing them. That's what we're looking at. If you've been watching any of the news about the Turkish problem, the fact that when Turkey goes belly up, it could affect European banks who have lent Turkey all this money. They're never going to get it back. I keep saying none of these debts are ever going to be repaid anyway. One of the interesting things that came out late last week was the head of Turkey named Erdogan, which is E-R-D-O-G-A-N. It's just a weird pronunciation. Here's the interesting thing he came out with, and it's another case of sleight of hand. Look over here while I do this over here. He encouraged when when the lira is their dollar over there, when it was falling, falling, going worthless, it's lost 50% of its value, I think, in just a few months. His plea to the people was pull your gold and your dollars out of under your mattress and put it in the bank for lira to prop up our lira. What I'm saying is, in the old look over here while I do this over here, whenever a leader of a country that's going down the tube speaks, you probably should do the opposite. In other words, if you're a Turkish citizen and you hear your president ask you to take your gold and U.S. dollars out of your mattress and go deposit them in the bank for Turkish lira, which lost 15% of their value in one day yesterday, you probably should do the opposite. And that leads me into the end of an article from my favorite gold man, uh, Egon von Greyers. And it relates to what I just said about ignoring a guy like Erdogan. And the subtitle of well, the name the name of this article is Insure Your Wealth or Lose It All. And it's from August 8th and it's from goldswitzerland.com. I need to give it credit because I'm gonna re I'm gonna replay part of it here verbally. So this section is called Invest When Unloved and Undervalued. At the time in 2002, gold at $300 was unloved and undervalued. This is, of course, the right time to enter an investment. Uh, Due to interest in wealth preservation from around the world, we, which means his company, he turned Matterhorn, which is the name of his company, into a regulated Swiss company facilitating the ownership of physical gold and silver stored in ultra-secure private vaults outside the banking system. Gold rushed up to $1,900 in 2011 and has since been correcting for seven years. In the meantime, risk has grown exponentially, and the reasons for holding gold as a wealth preservation asset are now stronger than ever. Investors who bought gold around the peak in 2011 and 2012 are obviously not in the money currently, but wealth preservation investors are not concerned. They know why they are holding gold, and that it is only a matter of time before the gold price reflects the true value of worthless paper currencies. If we look at the quarterly chart of gold in dollars now, the uptrend is very clear. So uh, now what he's talking about next is in currencies other than the U.S. dollar, gold is at all-time highs. Gold is near the top in many currencies. Looking at gold in other currencies, the price is around the 2011 top. Also in Canadian dollars or pounds, the correction from the top is much smaller than in U.S. dollars. So in other words, what he's saying is, It's just because 
the U.S. dollar is strong, that gold seems to be low right now. But around to the rest of the world, it's still pretty much at all-time highs. So all he's saying is that in inflation-adjusted basis, gold is extremely low right now, and it's a good bargain. So I've been telling you that also, and I do follow this guy's writings because the way he puts things is very very clear and very uh, kind of real-worldly. He kind of tells you kind of tells you the way it is. So we started in Chico at the city council and the courthouse. Then we branched out to Fremont, California, and the tent, putting together the Teslas. I won't say building the Teslas. I'll say putting them together because we found out that they're falling apart when it rains on them. Then we spread out to the world and the Swiss gold expert, and now we are at the entire universe. As you know, my book, The Miracle Business Method, which is scheduled to be published this fall, is based on a few important books to me, one of which is called A Course in Miracles. If anybody has interest in that book, I encourage you to study it. It's very entertaining, very interesting. It helps me. And the, the, the goal of the book is stated as peace of mind. So what else could you ask for? Sometimes you might, you might go to church or you might get taken in by some guru guy who offers you, oh, I don't know, uh, millions of dollars, offers you wealth, but the course simply offers you peace of mind, and that's what I'm looking for. Obviously, in the day-to-day -day business world, when you're working a lot and doing a lot of numbers and talking with a lot of people, what could be better than peace of mind? In that vein, I'm interested in educating you about a possible source of peace of mind for you. The book that I'm going to read from right now is called A Course in Miracles. I've read you a few things before. I've tried to explain how it works. What I'm going to read today starts with Lesson 11 from the workbook. It's a very short lesson, but I think it's very interesting. The title of the lesson is, My Meaningless Thoughts Are Showing Me a Meaningless World. This is the first idea we have had that is related to a major phase of the correction process, the reversal of the thinking of the world. It seems as if the world determines what you perceive. Today's idea introduces the concept that your thoughts determine the world you see. Be glad indeed to practice the idea in its initial form, for in this idea is your release made sure. The key to forgiveness lies in it. The practice periods for today's idea are to be undertaken somewhat differently from the previous ones. Begin with your eyes closed. Oh, and by the way, don't do this if you're driving. Begin with your eyes closed and repeat the idea slowly to yourself. Then open your eyes and look about near and far, up and down, anywhere. During the minute or so to be spent in using the idea, merely repeat it to yourself, being sure to do so without haste and with no sense of urgency or effort. I'll remind you that the subject of this lesson is my meaningless thoughts are showing me a meaningless world. To do these exercises for maximum benefit, the eyes should move from one thing to another fairly rapidly since they should not linger on anything in particular. The words, however, should be used in an unhurried, even leisurely fashion. The introduction to this idea in particular should be practiced as casually as possible. It contains the foundation for the peace, relaxation, and freedom from worry that we are trying to achieve. On concluding the exercises, close your eyes and repeat the idea once more, slowly to yourself. And that again is, my meaningless thoughts are showing me a meaningless world. Three practice periods today will probably be sufficient. However, if there is little or no uneasiness and an inclination to do more, as many as five may be undertaken. More than this is not recommended. Now, I wanted to point out that that's how easy this course is. It's easy to actually do because it's only a few minutes a day of these exercises. The problem is it takes years for your mind to believe what you're reading. 
So I'm just going to move on a little bit because I think this is important. It's important for me. As I say, I learn while I teach and I teach while I learn. Lesson 12, I am upset because I see a meaningless world. The importance of this idea lies in the fact that it contains a correction for a major perceptual distortion. You think that what upsets you is a frightening world or a sad world or a violent world or an insane world. All these attributes are given it by you. The world is meaningless in itself. These exercises are done with eyes open. Look around you, this time quite slowly. Try to pace yourself so that the slow shifting of your glance from one thing to another involves a fairly constant time interval. Do not allow the time of the shift to become markedly longer or shorter, but try instead to keep a measured, even tempo throughout. What you, what you see does not matter. You teach yourself this as you give whatever your glance rests on equal attention and equal time. This is a beginning step in learning to give them all equal value. As you look about you, say to yourself, I think I see a fearful world, a dangerous world, a hostile world, a sad world, a wicked world, a crazy world, and so on, using whatever descriptive terms happen to occur to you. If terms which seem positive rather than negative occur to you, include them. For example, you might think of a good world or a satisfying world. If such terms occur to you, use them along with the rest. You may not yet understand why these nice adjectives belong in these exercises, but remember that a good world implies a bad one and a satisfying world implies an unsatisfying one. All terms which cross your mind are suitable subjects for today's exercises. Their seeming quality does not matter. Be sure that you do not alter the time intervals between applying today's idea to what you think is pleasant and what you think is unpleasant. For the purposes of these exercises, there is no difference between them. At the end of the practice period, add, but I am upset because I see a meaningless world. What is meaningless is neither good nor bad. Why then should a meaningless world upset you? If you could accept the world as meaningless and let the truth be written upon it for you, it would make you indescribably happy. But because it is meaningless, you are impelled to write upon it what you would have it be. It is this you see in it. It is this that is meaningless in truth. Beneath your words is written the word of God. The truth upsets you now, but when your words have been erased, you will see his. That is the ultimate purpose of these exercises. Three or four times is enough for practicing the idea for today, nor should the practice periods exceed a minute. You may find even this too long. Terminate the exercises whenever you experience a sense of strain. I'm going to stop right there. This is the point of why I'm promoting the miracle business method that incorporates things like this. If you could take five minutes and completely ignore what's going on around you and simply be, be in your chair, be in your room, not have any thoughts, especially thoughts about what happened today, what happened yesterday, what's going to happen tomorrow, and just sit quietly for five minutes, your mind will settle down, but you will be told by your mind that you need to get going and do something. The phone might ring. There might be a knock at the door. Someone will interrupt you. You're told by the world that the world is so important and it has so much meaning that you have to pay constant attention to it. What the Miracle Business Method teaches and the Course in Miracles, which is a very important leg of the chair that designs the business method, what you realize is that the less meaning you give things, the less they can harm you, the less they can bother you. That's not to say that you treat people indifferently. It means you realize that everything you see is just part of your own thoughts being projected outwards. Try it by trying to quiet your mind and not even think about things for a while. Now, I also encourage you to do these lessons, but you know, doing the lessons is, it's hard to do right off the bat because 
until you get your mind focused on the fact that it might be true what this book is saying, that the world is meaningless and has no meaning. Until that sinks in, these exercises are kind of hard to just jump in and do. They'll still help, but one of the best exercises you can do is to try to sit quietly and take a little two or three minute break and try not to think about anything. One way to do that is to think to yourself, I wonder what my next thought will be. That way you'll actually have a quiet mind, even if it's only for a second or two. So I'm 